Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Rob Waterhouse. Rob, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Rob Waterhouse. Rob, thank you very much for joining me. A great pleasure. So Rob, what was your first memory in racing and wagering that you can recall? Um, well, my father was a bookmaker. I wasn't allowed to go to the races till I was uh, 16, but I used to go up with Dad every Saturday morning to the office at 8 o'clock in the morning and, uh, and work with him there. And I'd come when he came home at night, at 6 o'clock at night from the races, I'd go to the office and meet him there and help him with the settling and other chores. So that was my first involvement in racing. And of course, sitting around the kitchen table and being with him a lot, it's amazing how much you actually understand about racing and betting. Thinking everyone else understands it, but it's just a huge advantage growing up in a betting family, I suppose. So do you feel like there's a big part of it is osmosis and just being exposed to a lot of it from a young age and I guess all the time? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's really important in all businesses. You know, a person whose family grows up in a business, a person who grows up with a family with a business, they understand the business much better than other people right from the start. So what drives you every day? It sounds like, and I don't know you at all, but it sounds like from uh, everything you can read and hear, you're a very diligent form student. Is that fair to say? Well, I suppose it is. Um, I suppose I'd like to think I've always had a good work ethic. And unfortunately, you can't make a success of betting on horses unless you've done the, the, the work beforehand. So how are you able to do it year after year, decade after decade? Is there a secret source to it all? Um, well, uh, I think... Uh, it's just getting yourself into a habit of doing it on the one hand. But secondly, I think it's probably a bit easier now than it's been because there are less people doing the form effectively than there once were. What do you, what do you mean by that? You just think that people have been taken away well, to sports betting or other things? Well, I suppose so. We don't see them, uh, I guess. But I remember saying to a reporter in the 70s or early 80s, uh, there were perhaps 400 people at the races on a Wednesday who'd spend a lot of time doing the form and didn't lose at the end of the year. Um, now, there might be, a, uh, tomorrow at Canterbury, one or two people have spent a lot of time on the form and don't lose at the end of the year. It's, it is been a, there's been a big change in the uh, skill set of at least the people who go to the races. On the other hand, you have the, the big putting uh, monoliths that do the form better than anyone else has done in the past, and they're very successful, but they're sort of we don't see those as such. 
Okay. We can dig into some of that later. I want to just ask you generally, without giving away any proprietary secrets or anything like that, but what does doing the form mean to you? What is that? What type of process do you want to take? Um, well, I suppose I'd describe what I do as being virtually the same as I used to do uh, 40 years ago, uh, the same sort of skills and needs and the same processes. I keep three handicaps, a weight handicap, a la Phil Bull or Don Scott, then a, a time handicap, a la Phil Bull when he used to his time ratings, and I keep a pace handicap, uh, which is perhaps a bit different for other people, but I suspect that we get the same sort of results with the pace handicap. So have either of those or any of those three factors developed or changed much? I know, you know people look at times and people evaluate pace, but weight seems to be shifting over the last sort of decade or two. How have you felt they've evolved, or are they pretty steady all the way along? Um, well, uh, I guess that's a good question. In the case of weight, I think people pay less attention to weight than they perhaps should. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, punters um, lose less backing horses with lots of weight than they do backing horses with no weight in races, which means it's not taken into account fully. So, oh, look, I'm sure that weight, weight ratings are still very important. I think they're the most important factor. And do you go through each horse individually and evaluate all the other different factors that go into it, or do you have a sort of a process and a systematic evaluation of, of different uh, inputs that ultimately spit out an assessment or a price? No, uh, my job is to try and assess what price each horse should be, uh, and I spend time looking at each horse and working out where it fits in the race and what represents its chance. And have you always done it that way, giving each horse a, essentially a percentage chance or an assessed price? Yes, the same as my father always did. And have you seen other people do it different ways and, and win long term, or is that one of the sort of key key ways to do it? Well, I had a, a, a friend, and a, a punter, who was very successful, and uh, we all used to uh, markets to bet off, and he took a very straightforward approach. He marked his top pick a two to eleven chance, in other words, an eighty-five chance of winning. And, and I must say, he he won lots of money over the period. Uh, so I, I don't say it's the only way of doing it, but he, he just used back his top pick all the time and treated as though it was an eighty-five percent chance of winning. A, uh, which seems strange, but it most certainly worked for him. A dollar twenty-two chance. And, and what about the bookmaking side versus the betting side? Do you do anything differently at all in terms of preparation? Um, I see them as being very much the same. Uh, I sort of find bookmaking slightly easier than, than punting, I suppose, because you've got the, the natural, a slight natural percentage on your side. And I can pick out horses I don't like at all and make sure I lay all those. Uh, so I actually prefer the bookmaking side, but punting is very similar. And one thing that's sort of interesting to me is this idea that you fluctuate in how good you can do the form. Do you sense that you can have periods of time or ebbs and flows where you pick up things you otherwise wouldn't or vice versa and you miss things that you might normally factor in? Um, well, often you can be successful and put it down to your own brilliance, but it's just a question of luck falling your way. 
and conversely and have times where you, you do the form very well, but luck goes against you. I worked at the Darwin Cup meeting yesterday and spent a lot of time doing the Darwin Cups are a meeting in the outback of Australia and they race on a, a dirt service with some oil in it. Anyway, to, I, the first four races I did brilliantly, I suppose. The last five, I, I didn't do quite as good a job. But it's just the lack of things, isn't it, rather than not doing a good job so much. Sure. No, no that makes sense. So do you... What type of review process do you go through? Do you treat review as seriously as you do the preparation side or is it get the preparation and form right and the rest will take care of itself? Um, well, no, I most certainly uh, look at it. After every meeting, I spend an hour looking at uh, if I can find a reason I made a mistake in the way I've, I've done the form. And I spend a lot of time reanalyzing previous races after the results come in and adjusting. And I think that's a very important process. So will you reprice the runners uh, after a race to basically put them in a position they should have been rather than what you had them prior to the race? Um, well, uh, it's now done by the computer, but I say if that race will, will re-run uh, tomorrow, what would the betting now be? Yep. And I also keep video comments to, uh, where, the, where there might be excuses for horses or horses should be more highly regarded than the computer spits out. And do you find that you have certain tendencies that you try and avoid or even elevate if they're positive? Uh, you might find certain horses in certain situations or that certain things you see or pick out that you notice over time? I'm not sure what you're really saying. Uh, oh, I suppose I do look for certain characteristics. Are you saying I try and avoid them? What are you saying, Jake? More so, you know, favorite like you know favorites between two and three dollars in twenty six or or longer races. Perhaps you find that you do a pretty good job in that section. Or, or there's other things, you know, first up horses over a thousand thousand meters at Canterbury. For some reason, you find you have a good handle on on pricing them well. I uh, sort of think I do a good job with all of them, and a thousand meter races, I treat them totally differently and I, I think time's far more important and I'm sure that's right. I use my time ratings almost exclusively in 1,000 metre races whereas in a, a mile and a half or two mile races uh, the, the weight ratings are you know, totally important. But you know, I'd like to think I've had the experience to, to change, to change the, from the mistakes I've made in the past to try and get it somewhere near right. And I suppose that the bane of every former student's life is the resuming horse. It's hard to mark those correctly. It's a you know, very hard task. And it's hard to take positions with them. And you mentioned before video comments. Have you constantly yes. have to evaluate things like going back and reviewing the video? And obviously when you started, there probably wasn't access to, to certain things there are today. Have you adopted things early or have you taken time to see their value before doing it? I sound like a very old person who's a... A 14-year-old, I remember my father buying in 1968 a, uh, a video recorder, an extraordinary expense to help uh, record, to record the races and for the video comments. And I've always I've, I've employed one of my uh, people who works for me. His entire job is looking at the, watching the videos and making the video comments. I don't enjoy it very much, actually, and I'd rather he did than, than I do it. Um, 
but still, it's, it's an important thing. It's, it's hard to make any money out of video comments, I suppose, only I'd say, because everyone sees them. But you've got to be a, you've got to be aware of them, otherwise you, you, it can be costly. But it's hard to actually to say, yes, I backed that winner because of that video comment. So how do you allocate your time then? Do you have a, I guess, a strict, rigid process where you spend a lot of time doing certain things, or does it just depend? Uh, well, I spend a lot of time doing it. I suppose uh, my important job is I do the. Uh, check the time ratings and the weight ratings for the for each race being after the races. I then go back and look at the collateral form, how it's developed, and readjust the uh, class ratings on that. And then I start on the, the next day's racing program uh, and try and do as good a market as I can. So in your experience, how repeatable do you think being a, a very good form student is? Do you think it just takes you know, 10,000 hours or 10,000 races or whatever it might be to get there? Or do you think there's a natural instinct to it and there's a knack of being able to pick up things that others probably cannot? Look, I, I do think that the gradual's 10,000 hours is important. And I think the second thing is you only really learn things through your pocket by actually making mistakes and being cranky about it. You know, there are people that have spent a lot more than 10,000 hours doing horse form and other things and don't learn much because unless you actually are punished when you make a mistake, uh, you keep making the same mistakes. Uh, and I've got lots of scars from mistakes I've made and hopefully learned a lot. So tell me about bankroll allocation then and maybe on the, the betting side, uh, what type of things do you value most when obviously the form assessment, going through the details, pricing up a race is, is one element, then you've got how to allocate your bankroll. Take us through your sort of mindset when it comes to that. Well, uh, look, um, everyone's a great fan of the uh, Kelly Criterion. And Don Scott, who worked with me and my father uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, I think his greatest contribution was actually his staking plan, uh, which is matching the outlays of the the percent of the horse. and look, I think that's very important to keep sure, to make sure that you are betting with a, a plan in mind. It's very easy to be lulled and having too much on short price horses and not enough on long price horses. So look, I think staking is, is very important. Uh, the trouble in, in racing is that betting into the, the pools or betting as a bookmaker or betting with, uh, as a punter, you can't bet as big as you'd like to bet. So it's... Um, you have to sort of match up with what the market will bear. Otherwise, you're being too big and you you have to take shorter odds. So you mentioned having a plan in place. Will you deviate from that plan or be flexible race by race? Or are you sticking to yes, that so plan? You have, you have to be flexible, but I, I will say in a, a perfect world, uh, uh, I should be having X dollars on this horse. Uh, will the market bear it? How can I do it? and I'll, I'll uh, trim my sales in accordance with what's achievable. So you've almost got to predict how the market will play out, I guess, and, and think about how you think you know, this $4 second favourite will either drift or firm and, and so on and so forth. Is that fair to say? Well, I think it is, and there's a fair bit of game theory involved. In other words, how to, to achieve the price you want to achieve. Um, 
you, you want to think how the market will react to the situation and, and um, it's almost it is almost like game theory in lots of occasions betting on course as a bookmaker or a punter so how did you think about that and i guess if you're standing up on on the stand and you're seeing different people come and bet with you that's information in and of itself of course and then these days you've got betfair or you can see you know different odds comparison sites how did you sort of digest all that information and prioritize well, it? Was it just gut feeling? For, for, for me as a, a bookmaker, one of the problems is I don't want to put the, my assessment on my board. I want to try and lay the horses I don't like at the short price as I can. And it is a bit of a game to try and not expose my hand, but still end up with the bets of the book I want, want to be there. And were you comfortable having large swings depending on horses who are going to win rather than just having a, a nice balanced book? Uh, it, look, uh, I've never had a, the benefit of a nice balanced book uh, and I'm, I've always, as my father did, I've always had taken strong positions. And do you think that's... It obviously is. Is it How easy is it to make that sustainable long-term? Can you... With the obviously the inherent edge, is it is it sustainable long term for just the general bookmaker, or does it take a specific skill set to be able to pull that off week after week? Well, the one thing I know is the bookmaker that actually has to make balanced books destroys his profit margin and earns very little from his business. That just doesn't work, unfortunately. The bookmaker makes a balanced book; he he gets nowhere fast. So do you prefer, it sounds like you prefer bookmaking, is that fair to say, as opposed to the betting? I because think that's you can, right. You can get yes, a lot out uh, of it anyway? Yes, I, I, that's true. I must say that I actually, uh, my turnover figures are actually higher in punting than they are in bookmaking, but I prefer the bookmaking. And on the betting side, did you like the idea of being able to pick your spots and, and not having to put up a board every race? Or what's up, what are some of the things from the betting side that you preferred? Um, well, look, uh, I, I'm involved with betting on the totes with the exotics, and I suppose it's a bit like putting up the board on every race, insofar as we uh, back many combinations in every race everywhere. So it is a bit the same as putting up the board in every race. So uh, that doesn't worry me. Uh, I remember Don Scott saying 40-odd uh, years ago uh, that you can't predict where the next good win is going to come from, you've just got to keep playing the, the game as it is and hoping the chips fall the right way. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So take us through the execution side and I guess the the art of betting well or however you want to phrase it, did you did you ever find that difficult? And I guess, you know, you do the form, you're prepared, you've got your price, and then you've got to decide then how you execute on that. Is is that a skill in and of itself that you can sort of develop or, or how did you find that side of it? Well, from bookmaking-wise, and I suppose punting-wise, you've got to be very aware of the market and it's no good uh, saying, I want to lay this um, horse... Straight away, and reaching for it because you'll end up laying at a very long price. 
and destroy any margin you might have in your favour. Um, there, there is a, a, quite a bit of game theory involved with it. It, is, it sounds a bit flippant to say, but it's, it's very important. And the same with punting. You, you, you've got to wait until the market settles down. You've got to sense which way the market's going, and you've got to take advantage of it. How hard is it to be good enough to succeed at both the form assessment and the art of betting? Have you seen a lot of great form students fall away just because they weren't able to manage their bank and and vice versa? They might have been uh, great at betting, but they just couldn't pick the right horses at the right times? Um, I have two good friends, and both are fortunate enough to be given access to the form assessments of the biggest punting group in Australia. And one of them proudly boasts that he hasn't drawn his wages for years because he wins so much money punting and he has a wonderful life. His best friend, a very keen punter, loses money uh, month in, month out, backing on the same tips. And it's simply because he has too much on the short-priced horses and doesn't manage his money properly and uh, takes the wrong odds things. Uh, it's quite amazing the difference between the two people with the same tips. So it's obviously very important. So take us through how you deal with bad runs or losing runs or just poor results over any period of time. Do you have a process in place to to be able to cope with those? Um, well, there's no doubt that uh, when you have when a, a, a gambler has a, a run against him, you have to firstly trim your sails a bit smaller uh, number one uh, and number two you have to go back to basics and just make sure that everything you're doing is very solid and that's what I do I go back to basics will you take time away will you dig into the sort of details into what you're doing and try and assess why and if it's just you know uh, this horse is losing by a nose more times than in the past or do you sort of sit back and and think about what are the core principles and, and go back to those I'm just into what the core principles are. Uh, I, I recognise you're going to have winning runs and losing runs. Uh, it's just back to basics. So what are some of the, the important lessons that you've picked up along the way and over your time, whether it be at the track or just in general being in this industry? Um, well, I suppose the, the uh, one lesson I keep quoting, I remember it as a, a young, a 60-year-old clerk at the races, there was a man, I'm sure he's long dead, called Lenny Shapiro, who used to come every race day and bet with my uncle Jack, who was a leading bookmaker. And he'd back the first favourite it was to win $50, which was a lot of money in those days. And if it got beaten, he'd then back the next favourite, wherever it was racing, to win what he'd lost on the first, plus the $50, and then the third favourite was. And every day it seemed to me that he would win his $50 and he'd go and collect it for my uncle and he said, I'm taking a beautiful young girl out to lunch now. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is, this is absolutely marvellous. But I must say, within a year, he lost 300000 to my uncle, which is a lot of money in those, in those early 1970s. And I remember thinking to myself, well, the Martingale putters do, do run the big into big trouble at times so uh, the moral of the story is you must never chase your losses and bet up bigger when you're winning and smaller when you're losing I think that's a You must have seen millions of different approaches and strategies whether it be Martingale or otherwise over your time 
Yes, but that's, I think that's a very important lesson that I learned, and I was tricked by it for the first you know, quite a few months, thinking what a smart man he was. But of course, it was a huge mistake and a great lesson to me. A lot of people answer this differently, but are there many different ways to win in your mind? And I guess we just spoke a little bit about betting strategies, but are there some things that you just cannot avoid if you're going to win long term with this game? Well, obviously, it's a it's value and staking plans. Uh, you can't win unless you have the value in your favour, and you must stake your money appropriately. And when you have something in your favour, you must bet a bit bigger, and you must be sure. I, I sort of like the old poker comment um, that if you're not too sure who the the mug is in the in the card game, it's obviously you. I like to understand why I've mark a horse at a shorter price than other people, or indeed a longer price than other people. Uh, I think understanding why there's a difference is probably a, an important thing. Why do you continue being involved in, in this industry for so long? You mentioned you've been up to Darwin. For those who haven't been there, it's a, quite a hot place from time to time, and there is a good carnival up there. But, but just tell us why you are so passionate and still to this day. Well, um, I, I really enjoy the Darwin Carnival. It's a, there's lots of money there. I actually enjoy the challenge of doing the, the Darwin form. And I, I normally do a pretty reasonable job. Um, so it's sort of a, I find it a challenge. I really enjoy it. If you had a, a choice and it was, you know, the industry was carved out in a way that you wanted it, would you be uh, on the rails Wednesday and Saturday at, at Randwick or Rose Hill or wherever it might be, or do you prefer the big Melbourne carnivals, or do you like travelling around the country and around the world even? I know you've been in New Zealand and, and Royal Ascot and a few other places. Uh, uniquely, I'm lucky enough to have, well, I've made a book at Ask, Royal Ascot in England and the English Derby and so forth. I'm the only bookmaker in the last 100 years that's actually able to work in New Zealand, and I hold licences in New South Wales and Victoria and Tasmania and South Australia and the Northern Territory and Queensland. And I must say, I enjoy going to the various carnivals. I love the, the Melbourne Spring Carnival. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Of course, Sydney's my home. Um, and I love the Warrnambool meeting, the jumps meeting. I, I really love doing the jumps form. Uh, so, you know, I, I like it all. And have you found many similarities across the different jurisdictions and a lot of, you know, the same themes coming up, whether it's on the bookmaking betting side or just the industry in general, or do you think they're all very different and unique and, and carry their own traditions and, uh, and other things that make them special? Well, I think if you had the same field, uh, I'll start again. If, you, if the, the Sydney ring and the Sydney punters were betting on the Melbourne races, I think the market would be a bit different to what is in Melbourne and vice versa. I think if they were in the Melbourne bookmakers and punters were betting on the Sydney races, I think the market would be a bit different to what it is in Sydney. So there is a, a little bit of a different approach. And, you know, it's interesting, but I, I, and I sort of think that Sydney might be a bit, uh, the Sydney market might be a bit more accurate than perhaps is in Melbourne. But, that's, but perhaps Melbourne people wouldn't like my saying that. But <laughs> I, think the, I think the Sydney market is. Uh, very well chewed over, and perhaps we don't. Perhaps city doesn't have the same depth as. In fairness, Melbourne has lots of depths to very strong country areas. Yeah, so so one example of that is, 
a lot of English horses or Irish horses came over for the Melbourne Cup and, you know, they would bring two or three or four over, probably be six, seven dollar favourites. They would some would go out hard in the lead and they wouldn't be able to hold on and then they would go back to the UK and just say, you know, that wasn't for us and all the Aussies would say, Well, they just got it wrong, they don't understand how racing is here, you can't sit three and four wide from the thousand. Why is it, do you think, it's just not compatible necessarily across jurisdictions? Are you able to sort of articulate any points that might be able to sort of describe what's happening? Well, if you compare the um, last, say, 600 metres of race with the overall time, for all races in England and all races in Australia and all races in, uh, in America, in England they go much, much slower early than we do here. And in America, they go much, much faster than we do here. Uh, I'd like to think that we run quite even sectionals, and I'd like to think that we're actually right. But um, And look, we've had quite a few Australian jockeys go to England and ride more of the Australian style with great success. So, look, I'd like to think that we actually have got the tactics right, but, but no doubt Englishman would disagree with me. Yeah, I would agree with you, Rob, and same with cricket and probably every other sport. So, mm. a man, a man, a man called Zatopek in the early fifties revolutionised foot running by running even sectionals, and we do close to that with horse racing in Australia. But, but the English may not, we would not agree with me. So, what are some of the best horses that you've ever seen or, or ever placed a wager on? Um, well, of course, I suffer the same fault everyone else does. Uh, Seeing great horses with young eyes puts them, uh, you, you elevate them very highly. And I've never seen a horse like Kingston Town or Luscombe Star. Uh, but I suppose if I stand back and say, well, is that sensible? I suspect that the modern day champion Winks and Black Caviar are better horses. Um, there's a thing in um, horse ratings, a bit like IQs, and there's a, a a theory, if that's the right word, that IQs every year to achieve this 100, which is the average IQ, you've got to be a tiny bit smarter. And I'm sure that applies to horse racing. The actual standard population has improved gradually over the years. And they're better fed and perhaps better trained. And whatever else. So I'm sure that the standard is high, and I, I can't see why winks and black caviar aren't the, the best we've ever, ever had in Australia. So how do you share ideas or get information from others to develop your thoughts and processes? Do you have any special tips for those out there or is it just a matter of you know, em- embracing the day-to-day and, and listening, basically? Well, uh, uh, unfortunately, the horse races used to be a place where there'd be lots of chatting and banter and what else, but the people have disappeared from the races. And the, um, there's not much to be learned through the media, uh, there, there are quite a few good books and that people can read, but there, there's not really a lot of, apart from that, there's not really a lot to be learned. You've got to talk to people, it's hard to find people that, that understand racing. So your website, you've been writing lately on there, what, what drives you to write on there and, and what type of uh, articles are you going to keep putting up for those who haven't read them already? Um, Oh, well, it's just, uh, I don't put much up. I just make a little few comments about the, the, the 
things people were talking about at the meeting I was at the previous day. Uh, and I'm told I'm a, a little bit critical of various things, but I think it's more that the, the, the general media is very uncritical of anything, everything sugar-coated. Sugar and, of course, I think it's unfortunate that's the case. I think it's good to have a little bit of uh, criticism, otherwise you get no improvement. No, absolutely. And one last question for you, Rob, before I let you go, and I very much appreciate you coming on. 16-year-old Rob Waterhouse or, or any other young punter out there who's who's a horse racing fan who wants to get involved, do you have any advice that you can pass along based on the time you've spent in this game? Uh, well, of course, you've got to become an apprentice to somebody, haven't you? That's a, that's the, the best advice to give. Uh, you can't do it on your own. You actually, What's hard to do it on your own, you've got to actually become an apprentice to somebody. And, you know, I was lucky enough with with my father, not only did my father have a great idea, but he worked with a man called Barry Terry, who was very brilliant, and, and Arthur Harris, um, and a man called uh, John Munro. And they were very brilliant and clever people. And I learned lot, lots from them, and I also learned from a man called Harry Broadley, who was a, a very brilliant bookmaker and a good form student. You, you learn from people, it's hard to find those people. I think the advice is you've got to become an apprentice to somebody. Okay, great advice. No, I, I do appreciate your time, Rob, and thanks for coming on the podcast to have a chat. 